Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. This is Jay from Practice and Research Together. Um, and we're really happy to have you with us today for our webinar, Heart of Allyship, a Framework for Social Work Practice. Um, before we begin, and this will be old news to those of you who have attended before, let me just get my slides moving here. There we go. Uh, I want to use this opportunity just to acknowledge uh, the land upon which I personally was born and raised. Um, we're all at part in, in different locations, so um, I'm going to talk specifically about uh, my area, which is Niagara Falls. So Niagara Falls, we're covered by the territory, um, or this territory is covered really by Upper Canada Treaties. And it's within the land that's protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. In this agreement, the dish uh, represents the land that's to be shared peacefully and the spoon represents us. So the individuals living on the land um, and as well as uh, the people who are using the resources of the land. Um, this agreement celebrates the spirit of that recipro reciprocity, excuse me, um, and creates space for the awareness of environmental sustainability, um, along with our all of our responsibilities to ensure that this dish is never emptied as we take care of the land and everything on it. Um, it's important to me and to share with you the <clears throat> my understanding of the history that has brought us to reside on, on the lands that we're on, um, and that we really must work to seek understanding of our place within this history. Uh, it's in that spirit I'd like to share with you where I'm situated. Uh, I'm a non-Indigenous person raised in the territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people by my parents, whose parents left their own traditional territory to settle on this land, unaware that by doing so they were complicit in the attempted genocide of Indigenous people by church and state. Um, my family was actually further complicit in this act unknowingly, by supporting the forced removal of Indigenous children from their home communities and culture uh, by the adoption of an Indigenous child who is my brother. When my parents inquired about keeping my brother attached to his Cree culture, they were told by the Children's Aid Society not to pursue any connection as it would only confuse him. Uh, now I'm the mother of an Indigenous daughter and grandma and auntie to many other young ones belonging to the Nishka Nation. And it's through that lens that I now witness how intergenerational trauma and the residential school system have impact uh, on the Indigenous community and on my own family. Uh, and also how important the reclamation of traditional ways of knowing and being really is, be it through language or ceremony uh, or food sovereignty or land back. Um, I choose to acknowledge that colonialism is an ongoing affair, and we must build upon our awareness of our present participation within it, as well as actively participate in the decolonization of our mindsets um, and dismantling the systems within our government and communities that continue to repress Indigenous sovereignty. Um, this is uh, important across all sectors, but certainly um, now more so than ever in the one that we all um, choose our career in. I encourage every person um, to take some time today to reflect on the impact of colonialism on your own journey and to consider what actions can be taken at home and at work uh, or in the community around you to support reconciliation. 
So thank you so much for hearing uh, my piece. And um, I'll move into our what you're all here for today. Um, well, I'll almost move forward to what you're all here for today. First, we'll go through a few housekeeping rules. Um, if you have questions throughout the presentation, you can use the Q&A box, you can use chat, or you can email them to us directly. Um, we'll collate those questions for you and ask them out loud to our presenters. So feel free to type those in as you think of them throughout the um, presentation. Um, you can take a look at the archived webinars page if you happen to um, have missed webinars in the past or have to leave this one early. We always record and you can find them under the resources tab on our website. Um, there you'll see this recording. Um, there'll be an audio file. You'll see the PowerPoint slides. And then we also create practice points um, as well for, for each presentation and also any resources that may have been talked about within the presentation. At the end, there will you'll be sent a short uh, evaluation survey and we would appreciate you filling it out. Um, we are here uh, to engage with you in the way that suits you the best and in the topics that interest you the most. So um, your feedback is always, always welcome. And please, if you are looking for information on webinars in the future or anything that PART can provide you with, please take a look at our Twitter, our Facebook, or our Instagram, um, and of course our website. So moving forward, um, sorry, my slides are a little bit laggy, I apologize. Uh, I wanted to remind everyone here that at part, um, we really review research as part of the process of evidence-informed practice. Um, and when we're talking about evidence-informed practice, we're talking about these four key factors. So we're talking about the case context, the child, youth, and family's preferences, the worker, supervisor, and organizational experiences, and then, of course, the research evidence. So the research evidence piece is the part of the equation that we like to focus on and to help workers better understand what the research is saying about a specific issue um, so that you know how and if you should use these findings in your decision making. Our webinar presenters are experts in the research pertaining to their field and area of interest. So it's great for us to be able to use this research evidence and knowledge in conjunction with our own practical knowledge to better inform practices and policies. Uh, so if you'd like to learn more about evidence-informed practice or evidence-informed decision-making, please visit our website and you will see a tab labeled the EIP Academy. Um, we also have some fantastic guidebooks that are available to you at any point um, for you to take a look at. So now what you actually really are here for, I'm so excited to have with us today, Dr. Jennifer Hedges and Dr. Evelyn Milliken. Um, I, uh, when I came across the work that they were doing and the, the work of, in fact, them and their colleagues, um, it was just a, it was a, a beautiful rabbit hole to fall down because I'm so, I'm just so impressed and encouraged by um, the work that um, they, they continue to do. Uh, Dr. Hedges is assistant professor at the University of Manitoba Inner City Social Work Program, and her research focuses on transformative social work education and the field of child welfare. Feminist, anti-racist, and Indigenous perspectives inform her practice as she works toward truth and reconciliation with post-secondary education and the profession of social work. 
Dr. Evelyn Milliken is acting as director of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Social Work's Inner City Social Work Program. And her areas of research include feminist social work practice, cultural safety and cultural humility, decolonizing inner city education, and the transformation in child welfare services uh, and working with respective, respectfully with Indigenous clients. And so I will, with that, pass the screen over to Dr. Hedges and Dr. Milliken um, and say welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate, uh, thank you for the uh, land acknowledgement. This is Eveline. Uh, we'll apologize now. Uh, Jen and I are both um, uh, struggling with different viruses, but, uh, but viruses. Um, and so our voices may sound a little foggy, but uh, um, yes, so just uh, just to be aware that um, we may have some little coughing fits and things as we go through this, but we're delighted to be here. And I'm just going to let Jen get the slides up so that we can introduce ourselves in a good way. Can you see, are yep. you seeing the slide and like what I can see on my screen, the pictures? I of just see allyship in action, Jen, oh, just the first slide. So Perfect. do you want to go to the, the next one, please? All right. Okay, do you want to go first, Jen, or do you want me to go? Sure, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll just th thank you again, as Evelyn said, for that beautiful um, and thoughtful welcome and land acknowledgement. So we wanted to, to just introduce ourselves as well, we'll tell you a little bit more. Um, so I'm Jen Hedges, um, she, her pronouns. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast um, in Newfoundland. Um, Newfoundland is the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq, Beothic and Innu people. Um, I loved growing up there. I'm very grateful. Um, it's a beautiful place and beautiful people. Um, my set, my ancestors traveled from uh, mostly England and Ireland um, and made their way over to Newfoundland. And I come from a long line of um, settler fisher people. Um, so I made my way here to Manitoba about almost 11 years ago now. So now working and living on Treaty 1 territory. Um, and when I think about uh, land acknowledgement in terms of, I, I try to think about sort of the moment that I'm in and, and what's happening right now today and just being a part of this presentation. And of course, thinking about land acknowledgements has a lot to do with our topic around allyship. And so when I'm thinking about um, acknowledging the land, acknowledging the people, um, the first people and the indigenous people on this land and all of the many things that um, I've learned and how that's enriched my own life and certainly the opportunities that I have in my privileged sort of settler position. And so allyship for me is really thinking about always, how can I be um, a good guest? How can I be, um, someone who is active and committed to working towards reconciliation and building those relationships. So um, for me, it's about being open. It's a commitment to ongoing learning and also showing up and being active. So I'll hand it over to Eveline. Thanks, Jen. <clears throat> My name is Eveline Milliken and I uh, go by she, her, them. 
uh, pronouns. I was gifted the name uh, Blue Water Stone Teaching Woman, um, and I have been had the honor of um, sitting humbly with elders um, and receiving teachings um, since I was a, a teenager. Um, I was born and raised in Treaty 3 territory, about uh, 566 kilometers north of Thunder Bay, Ontario. Um, and um, I um, uh, very much um, knew and appreciated um, how important the land was to the people um, and, um, and also saw the um, terrible atrocities and um, discrimination that was happening in that community and that in my communities. And that has certainly um, uh, influenced. And um, I was told by elders when I was um, um, at a younger age what my role was to be. And I have tried to faithfully um, follow in that in my career that has um, has followed from that. <clears throat> um, I am currently in Treaty 3 territory um, and uh, want to acknowledge that our water is comes from Shoal Lake um, First Nation and that those people there have been denied um, their own access to the water there while we in the city of Winnipeg um, have had the bounty of that water. Also want to acknowledge the sacrifices in northern uh, Manitoba, where I worked for many years, um, because the hydro projects um, interfered with um, traditional hunting, and also took away some of the lands and created hardships for the folks there. So I um, want to appreciate um, those kinds of issues. Um, in allyship with the visually impaired, um, I want to describe myself. Um, I learned this at a conference recently, and, and uh, because I have uh, visual impairments myself, um, I'm a five foot six um, cis woman of Scottish Irish ancestry. I have um, uh, brown hair with threads of silver. Um, I'm a mother and a grandmother of some um, cute little toddlers um, who probably gave me this virus. I think it's the daycare cold. Um, and uh, in Ellaship, I am wearing a t shirt um, that identifies um, um, a number of um, issues around um, love, kindness, and um, some of the other um, atrocities that are going on in the world. And I'm also wearing a red jacket. Um, and um, I have worked as a social worker from coast to coast to coast um, and um, have um, specifically worked um, in Ontario, Manitoba, and Alberta for significant amounts of times, but I've also worked in the Yukon and Yellowknife um, and some other um, territories in between um, on some consulting things. Um, so that's a little bit of who we are as we get started. I uh, just wanted to also um, recognize that we've talked about where um, we currently reside in um, Treaty 3 territory and also wanted to just uh, help people situate themselves um, as we um, very much um, acknowledge um, stolen land and the places where we have privilege um, because of um, some of these um, historic wrongs and the current ones. All right. Oh, I think I skipped over one. Oh, okay. Well, actually, we are going to skip over this one, but um, we did put this video in here. Um, it's a wonderful um, learning video that's on YouTube, so it'll, the link will be on the slides that uh, were given out and it's um, from York University and they're just really talking about the land acknowledgement and how to go about that in a good way and so we'll talk a little bit more um, about that later on but we wanted to have that resource there for you but it's it was a little bit uh, longer than what we'd have time to show here today but um, you can look at that afterward. Yeah. 
So now we want to know about you. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Emily. No, go ahead. Um, we, we thought we'd just invite you to sort of introduce yourselves in the chat and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what your role is, where you're, where you're zooming in from, um, and what you're hoping to get from today. And if you want to do that, we are just going to review a bit of the agenda. I can do that. And so, yeah, Evelyn and I um, teach together, work together. Uh, so we, you know, hopefully you'll um, can sort of join in in our our flexible style of sort of uh, just going with the flow and kind of connecting with each other while we're presenting. So uh, these are some of our hopes for the presentation um, that we'd be able to kind of look at how we define allyship, looking at language. We want to be able to give you some frameworks for allyship in action. We thought we'd talk a little bit about moral courage and cultural humility and um, just really think about what is our responsibility as social workers or helpers in any disciplines really and accountability when it comes to allyship. Um, and then what does allyship look like in practice? And if we have time, it would be wonderful uh, if we could share some examples of that and then hopefully some discussion and questions. Um, and um, so Evelyn, go ahead. So I'm holding up um, a book um, that we've got uh, as a resource. And uh, so Jen and I have shared our research um, in this in this book, and um, so some of the research that we're going to be talking about very briefly can be found um, in this book. Um, and uh, in each case, we worked with an elder um, and knowledge keeper to um, to ensure that um, our work was grounded. Um, so we want to practice um, um, what we're talking about: walk walk the walk. Um, but uh, and we are doing ongoing work in allyship, um, but we can't share that yet. We've got a grant, and we're going to be just um, we're just embarking on that now. So we can maybe give you an update um, when we've completed that research. Sounds good. I'm just seeing, I don't know if I can see everything in the chat. Um, I can see what Jay is writing. So it's possible if you take a look at the top of the chat, you can switch it to just the group or everyone. Okay, so yeah. So if it's switched to everyone. everyone, yeah, then it should be okay. okay. Okay, perfect. I'll just keep an eye on that. Um, okay, so I think um, we really wanted to commit to sort of grounding ourselves from the very beginning. And of course, we want to acknowledge the TRC calls to action, which are the first six calls to action are directly related to child welfare um, and how social workers are properly educated and prepared to work in child welfare and that they're knowledgeable about the history, about the impact of residential schools, that there's knowledge about colonization and the impact of that and how that plays out in our systems today. But also that, um, that social workers and those working in child welfare also have knowledge and understanding about indigenous ways and traditions and um, knowledges about families and children and how, um, culturally anchored ways of raising families and community and communities that we should have awareness and know know how to value that and for that to be a part of the work that we're doing. Sorry, my little clicker that uh, clicks to the next slide disappears if I'm not down there. Um, so I always like to acknowledge Dr. Cindy Blacksock, which of course is a an incredible 
um, Indigenous social work advocate for First Nations children and child welfare specifically. Um, and she really calls social work to task when it comes to the, the work that we need to do. Um, and I think this is a really helpful uh, thing to sort of ground us when she says reconciliation means not having to say sorry twice. So what does that really mean in our own context? And, um, you know, we often might think of history and look back and think, what would we have done during that time? Um, but what Dr. Blackstock is really clear about is that actually back then and now there was lots of information, you know, we, we had awareness about some of the injustice going on. Um, so what are we going to do? What are we doing now um, in this moment? So we're going to try this. Um, I hope it will work. If you just click, so if you go on your computers or just on your mobile phones, and if you go to menti.com, um, and I think we put it in the chat as well. I just have it up here. So you just go to menti.com. And then if you, it'll ask you for a code. So if you put that code in 96488641, um, then this question should pop up on your screen. So what words would you use to describe allyship? So we thought it might just be a fun way to kind of get people's feedback on what comes to mind when you think allyship. And we appreciate the folks, uh, the folks coming to us from Algoma and London and BC, Garden River, uh, Terrace, uh, uh, BC, Baker Lake, Algoma, and Brockville so far. Um, wonderful to be able to uh, welcome you here. <clears throat> Amazing. Can you see that on your screen? The words popping up? Very cool. So when Jen and I started um, doing this work, um, there's controversy around the word allyship and it has uh, fallen in and out of favor and concern. So when we uh, wrote um, uh, the chapter in this book, that was one of the things we started with when we uh, met with the elder and, and looked at the word and, and, um, and did some, um, some deconstruction of the word and whether um, it was appropriate or whether uh, um, that was an, an okay word to use. And we decided after our research that we were going to continue to use the word allyship, um, recognizing um, that there's some controversy and some challenges around that. But uh, we also are really interested in what the word might mean for you and what your hopes and dreams are in terms of how you connect with others and that uh, humility we bring as we connect with other communities. Yeah, this, these are really beautiful words. Um, I don't, can you see the start menti in the middle? I'm afraid to touch it because I don't, I'm not sure what it'll do, but um, I think these are wonderful expressions of what allyship might look like. So walking with, alongside, connection, courage, confidence, respect, mm -hmm. advocacy, solidarity, listening, love, absolutely. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll just stop and you can take over for the, the, the participants can do the, the, the <laughs> workshop. Excellent. <laughs>
All right. So, so thank you. And now we're going to go to the experts in terms of talking about uh, um, allyship. Do you know what allyship is? Allyship is using your power and your privilege to help marginalized groups empower themselves. So I want to be a good ally, so how do I like do it? I think the best way to be a good ally is to understand that we all have a voice and we can all use a voice. Is when you give support to others that need to be heard. Say you had um, a friend and they needed the, your support because they wanted to come out or just like say something that like they've never said before. You, you have to be there for them but also you need to let them speak for themselves. So you need to stand beside them, not in front of them. It's very important to be there always for your friend. Oh, Dad. Do you think that you're ready to explain this to somebody else? Yes. Okay, good. You, as a Every day, your friend. So you definitely get it. Yeah. Well, there you have it. Um, giving voice to the youth. They have really important insights. And they get it. Um, sorry, I interrupted the video because I was turning off my video just in case that helped with the streaming. But I think whenever I touch anything on the screen, it it affects the play button. So um, some some simplicity. Um, oftentimes we can uh, we can um, make things more complicated than they need to be. And kids are really good at uh, cutting to the chase in terms of that. So as we um, ask ourselves the question, why do we need allyship? And I think you've all answered that um, in spades as well. So um, we know that um, ableism, racism, sexism, classism, heterosexism, um, um, all kinds of uh, xenophobia, there are all kinds of ways that we're seeing. Unfortunately, um, there seems to be um, way too much on social media and other places where people seem to have permission to be really rude and and, um, and hurtful to other people. So um, more and more we're, um, and continuing, it's not like this is new, um, but uh, recognizing that it's important that we challenge these and that we stand with. Uh, Jen and I've been talking about the fact that um, allyship now can be really dangerous. Um, we're seeing um, in many communities um, and at universities, people are are being um, being harmed and stabbed and and some really um, hurtful things. So um, how do we stand for um, um, against racism? How do we stand against um, sexism, classism, um, and um, and acknowledge our privilege and stand back from that um, to stand with, um, with other folks? So I'll let you read this, but we know that um, mental health challenges um, are, are, are really um, at least more acknowledged now. Um, and as all of you are working in, in uh, communities, 
recognize um, the challenges that are happening. Um, we've um, talked a little bit already about how um, racist policies have created um, difficulties for families. The decision um, recently in the Supreme Court um, for the um, compensation package um, and a, a new apology from our current prime minister um, because some um, indigenous children and families have been harmed, uh, continue to be harmed um, through um, lack of funding um, of appropriate services. So we've been hearing include many stories that you already know um, where our child welfare systems across Canada have not um, valued um, Indigenous knowledges and communities equally and, and families have been harmed and separated. Um, there's lots of um, conversation about um, trans to SGLBT uh, kids and uh, this um, um, worrisome uh, challenge um, for parental rights, which is really um, often seen as a way of uh, um, silencing children um, and, um, and creating harm. Um, and issues of poverty and classism um, we see every day as social workers. Um, so we know that um, folks are experiencing, children are experiencing bullying. And um, we know that the, the, the uh, reports of bullying are higher among uh, minority groups to SGLBT, immigrants, refugees, um, kids um, that have disabilities, indigenous youth, um, and uh, folks who um, um, want to, um, not um, who want to be um, uh, show their independence in some other ways. So um, that's some stats from Canada First from last year. So this is just a, a helpful tool. Um, probably you've seen it before, but we often use these in classes when we're and just when we're doing our own self reflection and self awareness that that you know trying to understand those different all those isms that Evelyn just mentioned on the last page. Uh, so trying to understand how society is structured and the way we've constructed um, for certain folks because you're attached to a certain group, whether it's related to um, skin color, class, ableism, um, sexual orientation, sexual identity, um, all of these pieces sort of help us understand in terms of our own social locations, where we experience privilege as we walk in the world and where we might experience oppression. So you can see that power is kind of centralized here in the middle amongst these groups. And as you work your way out towards the wheel, you're experiencing less power. So, um, and it's not like a clear, you know, you're in this group, you're in that group. We all, most of us have very, uh, you know, dynamic identities. So we may experience privilege in some ways, um, in lots of ways, and we may experience oppression in other ways. And so when people and when people experience oppression in multiple ways, that has kind of a compounding impact. So those are important things for us to be thinking about when we're building relationships um, with folks in the field, but also when we're thinking about our organizations and our agencies and policies to really be thinking about what are the power dynamics here and who has um, a voice, who has, um, and what are we doing as workers to try and navigate that where we're, we're, we're acknowledging the power that exists in the systems, but we're trying to minimize that in the work that we're doing. Did you want to add anything to that, Evelyn? No, just, I, I think um, folks um, recognize that the intersection of a number of these um, characteristics um, 
um, you know, and, and, and as you say, how do we mitigate that in our own, own work? How do we um, recognize that some folks um, are, um, have less um, capacity to, to voice, um, maybe silenced um, by our policies and how do we how do we mitigate and change those and, and challenge those things? That's the the joy of being a social worker um, is that um, we um, it's a requirement of our profession that we challenge um, and that we do social action. So um, that's um, important that we we make sure that we're always working towards um, that creation of social justice for those who. Um, or not. Um, just as in terms of situating ourselves again, uh, the program that uh, Jen and I are working within at the University of Manitoba, uh, 70% of the students, and we've had over a th- thousand grads over the 40 some years, um, are uh, identify as Indigenous. Um, it's an access program um, for folks who have um, faced barriers um, to education. And um, the, other, the other 30% are folks who um, are refugee immigrant folks. So um, we have a wonderful mix of folks bringing their experiences to the class from all around the world. Um, and so the issues of language and status um, and even celebrations and who, what do we celebrate? Um, we just had that discussion. Um, are we celebrating um, all of the spiritual traditions of all of the students that come to us? So um, just looking at your own workforce and your own place that you work to see what kind of diversity um, we can continue to celebrate. So we wanted to kind of highlight some of the uh, things going on in the news just to really think about allyship in this moment in time as well. Uh, So maybe hopefully some of you have been aware of what's been going on across the country. Um, I I don't think I mentioned earlier, but I'm a a mother as well. And actually my youngest turned 12 today. So (laughs) 12, 14 and 16. So basically, (laughs) you know, a house full of teenagers. But um, you know, as a, as a parent for so long, I thought, you know, we're, we're going in such a good direction, right. For, for openness and inclusivity. And, um, so many times I've said, you know, this, this next generation is going to do things so differently. And, and, you know, they're just, some of these things are just, they don't even understand why this is an issue. Um, but it is, unfortunately, and we see this all the time when there's progress made um, around justice, then there's backlash. Um, so there's there's a there's a push to sort of maintain that narrative of us versus them. And um, that is playing out. And Diane had just made a comment about uh, that body size, and we certainly see that in and talk about that as well, um, is the um, some really t- um, horrific bu- bullying um, and social media um, and some of those um, uh, things that, you know, the research shows that for, um, for, for folks all along the gender um, spectrum, um, a lot of kids get bullied and, and shamed and a lot of judgment around appearance. So thank you for that uh, comment. That certainly is something as social workers that we need to keep, uh, uh, keep honoring all folks. So maybe some of you have been participating in the counter protests and marches that have been happening across the country. Um, We had one here in Winnipeg a couple of weeks ago, and I just wanted to highlight um, some of the folks that spoke and and shared some of their insights. And so talking about needing more allies, we need more education on sex ed and more education on who we are as people. 
because then maybe people will understand more. So connecting that learning and education piece um, to understanding. But then another person said, there are people who want us dead for existing as we are. And we just said that was such a powerful um, words to sort of really be able to reflect on the violence that this kind of, um, you know, this kind of uh, discussion can feel for some people. So it's imperative that we come out here and do what we can to protect ourselves and protect our loved ones. And so oftentimes the folks who are out on the front lines putting, taking the, the biggest risks are those that are most vulnerable. Um, so when we think about allyship, how can, if we're in a position of privilege, um, when it comes to this particular topic around um, sexuality or gender identity, then how can we in consider allyship? How do we try and share some of that risk? How do we um, situate ourselves in a way that helps, um, you know, reduce some of that vulnerability if possible? I've got, we've got a question here from, from Benedict, which I'm, I'm interested, Benedict, if you could, uh, um, you've talked, um, and the question is, uh, at what point would traitorous um, identities come into play with allyship? How can one establish a traitorous identity group without the backlash? I wonder if you could uh, um, tell us a little bit more by what you mean, um, Benedict, about a traitorous identity group. If I open the chat, can you see it or is it just visible to me? I, I can see it. But okay. that was the question I've got. I don't know if Benedict, if you're able to unmute yourself. If not, maybe we can get to that at the end, but I'm just interested um, is certainly, um, we see lots of examples of folks <clears throat> who want to maintain the status quo and will fight very, uh, very much for um, um, what bell hooks call the uh, white male uh, supremacist um, uh, point of view. Oh, I, sorry. Well, we'll try to get to you at the end, Benedict, um, and, uh, and see what, how we can respond to that. I'm sure other people have that question as well. So thank you. Okay, Jen, I think yeah, we have another video. So just, go ahead. Um, so in this video, um, just being a, a point of pride, the person, uh, one of the people speaking here, um, the mom group uh, is a graduate of the inner city social program. So that's one of the other um, quite large groups that uh, we have within the inner city is folks who are transitioning. Um, and Alba talks about um, um, the fact that um, her, um, her trans son um, is um, what well, um, it also graduated from this program as well. So we have several generations of folks who um, have been working in this field for a long time. The trans community is getting bigger and bigger. People are coming out, children are coming out younger and younger, which is great. A push is underway to make schools in Winnipeg more inclusive for transgendered students. 
Dean Gios is a trans individual and the Rainbow Resource Center's Equity and Inclusion Coordinator. Gios has been speaking with students and teachers about transgender rights and issues. The Canadian Institute of Health Research says transgendered youth have a higher risk of psychological distress, self-harm, major depressive episodes and suicidal thoughts. Gios says having resources in schools can help transgender youth deal with potential mental health issues at a much earlier stage and sometimes all it takes is one person to care. If they have one adult, it doesn't even have to be a parent, just one adult in their lives that is supportive, their chances of suicide drops 40%, and that is extreme. Alba Lopez-Gomez is the parent of a transgender child. She says non-gender bathrooms are important to have in schools along with safe zones, to use correct pronouns when addressing students, and avoid dead naming. Dead naming is when a person has chosen not to identify with their name given at birth. Instead, they have claimed a new name, one they feel better represents them. And Gomez says it's critical to respect and use the new name when addressing a trans student. That's very important because when you don't use the new name, the chosen name, you're denying that child's identity. And for me, I think it's dehumanizing. Gomez says heteronormative children and their parents have a lot of anxiety when it comes to the start of school. She says trans kids and their parents face increased levels of anxiety and often more bullying and mistreatment by other students. Fiona England is a healthy mind specialist with the Winnipeg School Division. She says the goal is to be more proactive and less reactive when it comes to the supports for trans students in schools moving forward. Whether it's trans and gender diverse issues, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, whether it's suicide, by giving space to really talk about these issues, that's when we do well. You know, by being silent and being stigmatized, that's when people are struggling and languishing, and we really want to change that. Naomi Finkelstein is also the parent of a trans child and co-runs Pafati, parents, family, and friends of trans individuals. The group meets twice a month. For the first three years, nobody else came. <laughs> But we knew that there were parents out there because kids were attending the support groups for, for kids. And we stuck it out and slow but surely, people started to attend. Pafati meetings are for adults. They are a safe space where bullying and negativity won't be tolerated, says Finkelstein. Everyone and anyone is welcome to attend and listen and talk as long as they are respectful. In Winnipeg, Mark Newfeld, City News. So we thought we'd just highlight a few of the um, some ally actions that have been in the news lately. Uh, we've got the, I'll just click ahead here. So um, Julie Black singing, changing the lyrics to the national anthem recently um, to our home on native land. So there was quite the discussion about that um, afterward. And then of course, there's lots in the news about what's happening in the NHL. And um, again, that sort of back and forth, right? They they made this move to sort of really embrace um, pride and and then kind of backtracked on that. And of course, uh, uh, oh, I'm forgetting his name. It's on here, I think. Yeah, Travis Dermont. Yeah. Um, in an act of allyship, uh, mm -hmm. did it anyways and 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 there was a reaction to that so i'll let you elaborate on that eveline um let's move on i'm just looking at the time here and okay. realize we got a bunch of slides <laughs> jen and i time. love chatting and yeah, uh, we, we're used okay. to three hours so we got to move along here <laughs> um so just getting back to what eveline had mentioned earlier so when we when we started thinking about um wanting to really look into allyship and what this really means 
um, we also had to uh, re recognize that there's a lot of sort of critique around allyship right now. And that's what I, the connection we wanted to make to land acknowledgements, because there's a similar conversation going on around the concern that land acknowledgements, although this step forward um, at one point is now there's a real concern that it's quite performative. So, you know, you're kind of checking the box and you can see how everybody does that to start a meeting and um, and feel good about that. But what action is actually happening? What what is what meaning is um, in meaning and action is in that land acknowledgement. And I think Jay provided a beautiful model this this afternoon of what a meaningful, um, purposeful allyship uh, land acknowledgement um, can look like. So uh, we just, we looked to some of our favorite um, scholars and activists to kind of, um, who have inspired us and kind of taught us about what, uh, what we've come to learn allyship uh, should be. Um, and instead of just, you know, ignoring the word ally, because it is still used very um, widely used, especially in social work contexts and texts and, and things like that. So we thought, let's not um, you know, just go on to another word without interrogating it and figuring out what the problem is. Let's look at allyship. Let's examine what performative allyship is and let's have that conversation so that we're moving beyond that. Um, so Lilla Watson is an uh, Indigenous Australian activist. And this is really helpful because um, this quote comes from a from the situation in the 70s where um, Indigenous activists were um, doing a lot of work and uh, settler folk were asking the question, what can we do, right? Um, I think that question all the time, what can I be doing? And so their response was, um, you know, we can't tell you what to do and won't tell you what to do. But the quote, the, what the challenge was, if you come, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. If you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And so that really speaks to sometimes here in Canada, we, we talk about um, that we're all treaty people. So we're all, if we think back to that power wheel, we're all embedded in this system that is inequality. Um, so we all have to be liberated from that. We all need to be working towards being liberated from that if we want to seek social justice. I'm just going to check in with Sarah here and Jay. Um, I was told we should talk for 40 minutes and by my clock, we're at 40 minutes. So um... oh, after the introduction, though, right, please. <laughs> of course, please continue. OK, okay. Time, yes. OK, we can go. Do you want to talk about um, Lee Miracle, Aveline? Um, I think people can read for themselves. Um, folks uh, hopefully know uh, the amazing Lee Miracle, who sadly has passed on. She's a uh, indigenous scholar um, out of from BC originally, but um, through Toronto and a, a good friend. She'd been at the inner city a number of times. So um, folks, um, I'm just concerned with time, always the timekeeper here. Um, so I'd like us to move on. Um, again, some of the unhelpful stuff um, we often hear people saying, um, in addition to what Jen was just talking about, um, is how do I help? And people put themselves in the spotlight rather than standing back. Um, and then people who think it's unhelpful to say, I don't notice difference. Um, but what it does is um, it um, it uh, um, denies people um, who they are. So again, um, just um, the importance of us being honest um, and not uh, diminishing or denying people 
people um, who they are and uh, pretending that, that we're doing something valuable by saying, oh, I don't see that um, because it actually is very diminishing of people. All right, uh, we wanna talk about the, um, the allyship journey um, and Jen's gonna take this away. Uh, well, I think, you know what? the visual says it all. And we, and we just kind of talked about that. It's a journey toward active allyship might be that those first steps were more interpersonal. Um, and this is from a, an Instagram post from Britta Thorne down there. If you want to look up, uh, she has a wonderful post there that kind of works through this journey or the pyramid of accountability. So active allyship is kind of where we're, we're starting to learn and maybe in our, in our, you know, one-on-one -on -one relationships. Accomplice is where we are um, becoming more active. We're doing something. We're we're out um, with folks advocating. And co-conspirator is even more so, right? We're willing. We're willing to actually risk ourselves mm -hmm. um, towards justice. Um, so I'm. I'll just stick this up here for a second. But um, this was just to introduce some of the research that I've done. So I was interested in looking at how we prepare social workers to work in child welfare. And so I looked through the literature and I am I myself, Evelyn and I both have worked in child welfare as frontline practitioners as well, myself in Ontario um, from for about nine years. And um, so some of the challenges in, in social work, I think you'll be familiar with all of these, but certainly the overrepresentation of Indigenous children and other marginalized groups as well. So in Ontario, um, black folks and black children are more are overrepresented in the system as well. Um, and so I looked at the challenges in child welfare and also thought they were challenges for social work education as well, because we need to be preparing students to not only work in the system, but also transform it. So out of that, out of the data that I had collected, um, so I did a study and talked to 28 social work educators, um, social workers who are working in the child welfare field, and also some community leaders and key informants. And um, so that's a study. But then Evelyn and, Evelyn and I wanted to look at that data and really think about, okay, well, what, what, does the what is that data telling us about allyship in child welfare? And so we reached out to um, Elder, Elder May Louise Campbell, who's a wonderful friend of the inner city, and we worked together um, with Elder May to learn about what this allyship journey might look like in child welfare specifically and what we could think about as social workers. And through um, meeting with her and the teachings that she um, gave to us, we developed the heart of allyship, which really has to do with um, relationships as the foundation, uh, honesty, so understanding history and what the true history is, and in particular, the child welfare history and how social work as a profession has been engaged in as a tool for colonization. Humility, so listening and learning, so that commitment to ongoing, um, uh, ongoing learning, but also that open mind and heart so that we can really listen and engage with people so that we understand their experience and appreciate what the, what the history is. And then, of course, again, the healing piece for all of us, um, for everyone, and being able to imagine a different world, a different system where there aren't these overrepresentation, there aren't these, um, you know, unequal uh, issues that we're facing in the system. So there's uh, Elder May Louise Campbell. We just wanted to acknowledge her. 
And these were just some little, uh, and these will be in the handout as well. So these are just some of the quotes from the chapter um, and from participants. So uh, this was really a, a lesson from Elder May Louise was true allyship is more than a good idea. It must be a matter of the heart. Um, participants in the research talked about it's pretty normal that families would distrust us, hate us, see us as all powerful and fear we're going to take away their kids for no reason. Um, that's a very reasonable, given the if we're going to be honest about and truthful about the history, then this is a very reasonable response um, for families to feel when, when child welfare shows up at their door. Um, participants talked about it's not your technique, it's not I'm using this model, that model, it's can you form a relationship of what's going on, a genuine relationship human to human. And then when we're thinking about cultural humility and cultural safety, we need to ask ourselves, does this child family community consider me safe? Is, am I, do they consider me an ally? Um, so um, uh, interspersing with that um, is some of the research that, that I'm doing in, uh, in terms of uh, cultural safety, self safety, cultural humility um, within um, uh, child welfare systems and talking to child welfare workers specifically. Um, and there's that uh, parallel process that folks uh, talk about where um, they might um, um, feel invisible um, and also very visible at the same time. So it's that, um, that challenge of um, being marginalized um, and facing barriers, but at the same time being very visible um, because of um, um, what they bring. And, and again, um, the, the, a lovely comment about um, neurodivergence um, in terms of we've, um, some of the folks in the chat have been talking about um, how folks um, may be excluded um, because of the gifts they bring, but at the same time, they're highly visible um, in some of the negative ways. So um, looking at, um, and the research is supporting, as Jen said, so um, again, um, from the research that's in this book, um, talked about walking courageously um, with, um, with uh, Indigenous uh, child welfare workers. So I talked to folks who worked in their four different systems within uh, uh, four different authorities within Manitoba. And um, some of them are um, general, some of them are specific to um, Southern regions. Um, but a return of uh, child welfare services to Indigenous communities. Um, and so I talked to um, folks who are working in those systems um, uh, who um, may uh, are walking in two worlds uh, to a certain degree. Um, so um, chatted with those folks and um, they had master's degrees um, or BSWs and had been working between two and 20 years um, as child welfare workers. And these are the questions I asked them. Um, is what kinds of things were facing you, um, giving the history um, that we've talked about. Is it possible to make a difference in uh, for families um, caught in those systems? Is there such a thing as uh, Indigenous child welfare practice? And uh, they told us that, yes, there were, and they identified some of the ways. So we'll talk about that as we go further. Um, so these are some of the things that folks said. Um, you live in two worlds. You have to be vigilant when you're with your own people. They understand, but then they're comfortable, but then they're, you're with other people. And so you're always having to move between um, those spaces and you have to be careful what you say. Hmm. Um, and then this is from Zon, who is a researcher in Australia. Um, and um, Zon talked about whether uh, it means, and they use the word uh, Aboriginal, uh, Aboriginal workers are at greater risk of being held accountable by the community for the actions of the de their department than on their non-Indigenous colleagues. So again, that was one of the other pieces 
um, that folks talked about is the extra work that was expected sometimes um, for racialized um, um, workers um, and, um, and also an extra level of responsibility perhaps from their own communities. And that can be from folks who are um, 2SGLBT identified, um, folks who are neurodivergent um, identified, et cetera. So um, while that research is specific to what Indigenous child welfare workers were telling me, um, our research is also showing that that um, is shared um, and shared opinion across other folks. Okay. So we wanted to, again, I'll just draw your attention to Cindy Blacksock, and she's written a, a wonderful article. I always use it um, with students in class on moral courage, and she's really sharing her own experience working as a child protection worker in the child welfare system um, and, and her experience of acting with moral courage. But she, of course, explains what that is. And ultimately, moral courage is doing the right thing. Um, when you know it's the right thing, but it could have a negative consequence for you, um, but you know it's the right thing. So there's a wonderful, uh, actually nursing, the profession of nursing has done a lot of, um, well, has done some research and, and has some good literature around moral courage. So that's another hope that hopefully we'll be back talking to you about some research around that um, within the social work field. But um, this article talks about, it provides this acronym for code. So what, what is what we need to, to act with moral courage um, is courage. <laughs> so we need to be willing to do that and build ourselves up with supports and resources and information. Um, what are our obligations? So uh, what's, our, what's our code of ethics for what profession you're um, connected to? So certainly for social work, we have a code of ethics, we have core values, we have standards of practice. In your agency, you may have um, sets of those as well. So we need to think about um, that. And, and it can be a wonderful way for social workers. We had a, a discussion in class today um, or yesterday where uh, someone was sharing kind of the challenge. They didn't feel like they could voice their concerns and how difficult that was. And we talked about that sometimes as social workers, we can say we have a code of ethics that I am responsible to. And that sometimes that allows us sort of that that way in to voice our concerns. Um, we need to understand uh, what the uh, consequences might be and what we need to do to help uh, us overcome that fear. So communication skills are really important, having a good understanding um, and a calmness about what you're hoping to achieve and what you need to um, address and then the actual expression and action. So what actually needs to happen? So you can look at that article to kind of get, help you develop a bit of a framework um, around what moral courage looks like. And, and we recognize that um, that it's, it's a dilemma. Um, we talked about this in class, another class. The dilemma is how do we um, stay true to um, the work we want to do to be an ally and to make those changes in our systems that are very colonized. So do we do we leave the systems and or do we try to stay within systems and, and have that those um those um that grinding and that difficulty in trying in terms of trying to change those systems from, from within. So you may be facing some of that. If you haven't um, seen or read this article, again, really encourage you to look at the statement of apology. So the Canadian Association of Social Work has put together this document and it does a really good job of offering the history. Um, so that truth telling, that honesty um, 
about the role social work has played in the child welfare system. And as we had mentioned, as, as a tool for colonization and how that continues to play out today in the systems that we're working in. Um, and that we also have, we're also in a position to, to reshape those systems. Um, and so learning how to do, do that through allyship is really the, the way forward if we want things to be um, you know, culturally anchored and just, and we want uh, folks who have not had a voice to be able to speak into those um, new systems and doing things in a different way. Should we skip over this video, Evelyn? I can't remember how long it is. That's only a couple minutes. How are we doing for time? Can we get a... Why don't we post the video in the chat for our participants to be able to watch okay. uh, at yeah. time? And we can also send it out after with your PowerPoint slides and your practice points. Perfect. Great. Thank you. It's a really powerful video um, that, that really addresses um, anti-Asian uh, uh, racism and uh, I think makes really powerful powerful points. Yeah. All right. Um, so cultural humility. Um, so a part of allyship is um, goes really hand in hand with cultural humility. Um, and so these are, this is kind of the how to um, in terms of how, how do we be allies and is, is to bring that cultural humility to it, which is a, um, um, a, a lifelong commitment to self-evaluation and self-critique. So we've got to be open um, to uh, recognizing what our profession and we personally and our families, how we might be complicit in some of the challenges and difficulties and um, oppression that has helped, happened to other people. Um, we uh, examine our own beliefs. Um, what are the things that I believe um, are, are some of those um, chafing at um, the rights of somebody else? Um, and we look at our cultural identities and some of the things that um, Ann Wilson Shafe talks about how we breathe in the toxins, um, and so we may be carrying some of those um, some of those attitudes that might be uh, getting in the way of being um, helpful allies to others. Um, recognizing power and imbalances, as we've talked about, and then um, as we've already pointed out, acting on on those things. It's not just enough to have the things in our thoughts and. And that was something um, Elder May um, certainly spoke with us about is it really is about the heart and spirit of what we're doing, not just our thinking. And um, as Jenna said already, it's not performative and it's not something uh, where it's a checklist. So we say, OK, I've done that, that and that I must be OK. Um, and then what we've already been talking about is that institutional accountability is we are representatives of institutions um, that have some work to do. And how do we. Um, keep encouraging um, our institutions to move forward. So the journey to cultural safety, um, I'm just going to go back to that, is, you know, these are words that we hear. Um, let's have some cultural awareness training. Let's get a certificate in cultural awareness, um, which is great. Um, and this is about learning about other folks because we, we've only grown up how we've grown up. Um, and so um, it's important that we can hear about the values and beliefs of some other people. Cultural sensitivity as well. This is um, excellent being aware of um, that how I do things may be different and may be completely antithetical to how someone else does things. So if I'm from an individualistic culture um, and um, come across or I'm working with somebody who's from a collectivistic culture, um, um, the example I use is my friend Grant from uh, Norway House will phone and say, I'm coming into the city. 
and I say, oh, my brother is visiting. How nice. We should go for pancakes. Um, and that lets him know that my brother is in my spare room and he doesn't have to ask, can I stay at your house? Because we've already had this conversation in a collectivistic way um, because he's not going to ask if he can stay. But if I say, oh, you, you know, um, I have no one staying with me yet. Um, is it possible? Um, so that communication um, and being sensitive to uh, to how others might communicate is important. Uh, cultural competence. Again, um, many of us have gone through training on cultural competence, um, but does that get to the heart and spirit? And that's what um, the additions of this thinking about cultural humility and cultural safety add on to um, the, um, the depth of how we can walk with people in a way um, that um, is um, open-hearted and is always about learning um, and, and recognizing places where we might hurt someone's um, step on somebody's foot, we might hurt someone's feelings. Even if it's inadvertent, important that we take responsibility for that. Um, so here's some of the research that I did. Um, the article, um, it's, it's in a law journal, but um, looking at how we use silence. Um, and the video that we didn't get to see talks about silence as well, is that silence can be strength. Um, and so um, people in uh, that I talked to talked about how they didn't want to talk to social workers because it was a way of protecting themselves. They'd had so many harms. It could be not talking to teachers, not talking to any number of people in authorities. Um, and then it said, um, any reasonably sane uh, human being can pick up on body language. Um, so sometimes you don't even think about it. You just say, forget it, you know, and you shut yourself down. So as social workers, I'm sure we all remember times when it was really difficult to get um, someone to um, um, communicate with us. So maybe it might be a matter of just um, honoring that um, and um, and having some patience with folks um, and to hear about what and and um, discern that that silence may be a way of protecting themselves from us and our systems. Okay, we're wrapping up. So a bit of a summary in terms of myths of allyship. Um, allyship is about engaging straight white men. True or false, Evelyn? Um, allyship has got to be way bigger than that. <laughs> Um, since I have privileges, I should be the one to solve problems. So I don't, uh, hopefully what we've talked about so far kind of answers these um, for you, but certainly it's about listening. Um, I'm an ally because I believe in equality. So that's the bottom of the pyramid, right? That's a good, um, but you have to move beyond that to action. I don't want to overstep or say the wrong thing. I don't have what it takes to practice allyship. That's a pretty like, that's a strong self-reflection, right? And we might feel some of those things because it is risky to be acting in allyship, especially in this moment. Evelyn mentioned earlier, it's it's it feels more dangerous and maybe is more dangerous um, at this moment time to be to be engaging in allyship. Um, now that I'm an ally, I'm no longer an oppressor. So we when we think about oppressive systems that's not something we can wake up and just decide we're not going to be a part of that anymore these are structures and systems that we exist within um, so we have to be able to work towards dismantling those and that important piece about imagining something different and in um, the article that I referred to earlier, um, I talk about how people um, people don't just look at us when we're in our professional roles they watch what I've I've uh, talked about, they look at us in the parking lot, is that um, folks who are being marginalized and harmed 
don't get to take a step back and say, oh, I don't want to participate in this. So people are watching our allyship to see, do we, are we only saying I'll be an ally when it doesn't cost me anything? Um, I'll only be an ally when it's comfortable um, because that's not allyship. So there's a recognition that allyship by its definition means that we need to be uncomfortable and we need to sp stand in some spaces sometimes that can be very dangerous um, and there, are, um, there can be harms to us and there can be things that we will lose. And if we only stand in allyship when it's convenient, I think we need to do some thinking about that. So we wanted you to think about what allyship might look like um, in your context. So we'll, we'll swing back to that. I just wanted to draw your attention to this other um, article by Gibson that actually provides an ally model for learning um, to become an ally. So it's a really helpful process that kind of, you know, uh, elaborates on building your awareness and knowledge, um, challenging your attitudes and beliefs or, or, you know, understanding those and where those come from and how you move that into action. Um, this might be able to be part of our, our discussion as well. So thinking about how we can be allies in our assessments. Um, do we consider multiple perspectives? Are we open to feedback? Are we continuously challenging sort of the conclusions that we've made or whether the decisions we've made still um, warrant that decision or have we been um, accepting new information and have we been showing up? Um, so a bit of a review, allyship is active and ongoing. We can't decide for ourselves that we're allies. We can commit to wanting to be an ally and work towards that. But when we think about cultural safety, cultural safety is when the person you're working with decides that that's a safe place for them to be their true self, for them to be able to express their identity and their culture in a way that's safe. So we can't claim to be allies. We have to act in allyship and then folks can decide whether we are in fact allies or not. Um, allyship should not be performative. It requires listening with an open heart. Um, it requires vulnerability and risk and accountability. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to dive right in to, well, actually, I think maybe our first order of business is we, we, we gave, we gave Benedict the power and then, uh, and then didn't circle back to his question. So I'd love to be able to do that now. Um, uh, so uh, Dr. Milliken, you were, you were asking Benedict just about um, his particular question around. Yeah, and please uh, call me Evelyn. Only my kids are required sorry. and only if they're misbehaving. Sorry, <laughs> Benedict, did you have, uh, do you feel like your question got answered or do you have some more um, that you'd like to ask about that? Are you still here? Okay, well, we'll come back around. If I see if I see his mute go off, we'll, we'll circle back. Um, we have another question that was referring to the, um, second video, I believe, which is I'm familiar with the rainbow symbol positioned as a pyramid. Oh, and yeah. in the video, I, I see that it's represented as a cone position. Um, is, is this a shift? And if so, what is the reason for this? 
Um, I think I think the answer to that is that was a particular picture um, that was at the Rainbow Resource Center, um, which is the longest running uh, 2SGLBTQ um, organization in Canada, by the way, uh, in Winnipeg. But I think that was just um, what the um, the video showed. They just took a picture of it. I I think that was that's all I'm aware of. Okay, excellent. Um, yeah, and maybe I'll, yeah, I'll do I was it. just going to add. I don't actually know, but that's a great thing for us to to look into. Yeah. Um, because I think sometimes it's that's another important part of allyship. I think is keeping up with, you know, as everybody kind of reflects and thinks and evolves. We need to be keeping up with, you know, yeah. what are the true um, ways to it to express allyship what is the language that we should mm -hmm. use and that's changing sometimes and that's okay right yes that's exactly what this this question made me think of as well because we're all we're also worried about you know saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing and sometimes that leads us to a bit of a paralysis um when you know kind of shifting that mindset to one of being okay with asking for forgiveness um can really really bring us much further um, so I see Benedict has his hand up. So if you want to unmute yourself, please, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, can you guys hear me now? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so my, my question was actually answered and um, I, 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 I think you guys have really um, we are talking about a very important topic in social work today, in, especially in our practice as social workers. Um, however, I'd like to translate and make application of this topic to our practice. Mm -hmm. So I am just like thinking, how can I apply allyship to my community where I am supervising right now. What are my rules? How am I going to go about becoming an ally, putting into cognizance the fact that there must be some power privileges, there must be some, some disposition that you have over others that you think is being oppressive to them and you want to dismantle those privileges. There are still some other powers that wants to continue those privileges. That's where the backlash comes in. And uh, like uh, what Dr. Jane said, you don't expect you, you if you, there should be some. I mean, it's not going to be rosy. It's going to just you should have some attack too. But how do you don't practice to have the attack and then be be in a disadvantaged position? What is the safety measures you have, even if you want to become an ally? What are the, uh, to, for you to become a proper ally in the community you are serving? Uh, you have uh, identified some some really challenging dynamics uh, there, Benedict, in terms of. Um, that uh, we carry particular positions in communities. It sounds like you are um, working, you're working in Baker Lake um, and that's not a community that you're from necessarily. Is that correct? 
Correct. I am. Uh, um, I'm not from. I'm not from there, but I'm. I'm working as a supervisor, family service in Bekale. Sure. And um, I identify as um, African Canadian. Yep. So, for sure. And, and and I was uh, that's that's a, a position that we're often in where we um, I would go into um, um, fly in communities and I lived in um, in isolated communities and it was pretty clear I wasn't from there. Um, and so um, what are some of the ways um, to create allyship? Um, and um, I um, one of my first um, things that I learned to do when I went into communities um, was to connect with um, elders in the community and ask their advice. Um, so um, that was often a way of showing my humility um, and my connection. Um, we're also big fans here of feasting um, and washing the dishes and, and bringing, uh, bringing food. Um, and I have found sometimes in uh, communities where I was shunned, um, um, when I started bringing uh, food and started clearing tables and doing some of those things, um, I made a few more friends. Um, but I found going to elders in the community um, and asking for their guidance um, when I was not from that community was really helpful in terms of building some allyship. Um, and um, an example, I was in a community, um, although I did... Um, learn uh, Anishinaabeg um, as, a, as a high school student. Um, I went into a community and somebody was filleting fish and um, I was asked to do um, some counseling with her. That was, that was ridiculous. Um, so I just sat down beside the lake and I filleted fish with her um, and she invited me to come back again. So I wasn't, was that social work practice? Um, I basically brought my humanity um, and didn't um didn't impose um something that would have been totally inappropriate on a on an elder who was grieving um so sometimes um it sounds like you your your question tells me benedict that um bringing your humanity um in the face of folks maybe being anxious and nervous about us um um that you know showing up um and bringing your humanity um will continue to give you some uh some uh some connection with folks. Does that make some sense? Yeah, for sure. For sure, it does make some sense to me. Um, I also have another question quickly that I just can, if, I, if you don't mind, that I can just quickly put in here. Um, given the unique nature of intergenerational trauma in indigenous communities in Canada, which has actually led to mental health challenges. How can we use allyship as a tool to reduce trauma in our communities? Oh, you're not giving easy questions there, Benedict. Holy smokes. <laughs> can, I, can I just circle back? Because I just wanted to add a couple of things to the to the practice piece. And I think that'll segue into um, answering this question too, or at least exploring it. Um, but, you know, so we've both practiced in child welfare and we teach child welfare. So we think about this a lot. What does this look like in practice? Because it's one thing to, 
you know, learn from folks and get inspired and want to do things differently. But then what does that actually look like? Um, and that's an important discussion that has to be ongoing. And we and we learn from each other with that. We don't have to do this all by ourselves. Um, there's lots of people doing great work and we can learn from each other. But one thing in child welfare specifically is assessments. Do we think about systemic issues when we're writing our assessments? So really challenging that sort of individualistic kind of blame the parents, blame the child, blame the family. Are we talking about what the economy is like? Are we talking about the history of residential schools? Are we talking about the real systemic issues that are impacting this family? And is that part of the assessment? Is that part of their story? And so that's part of bringing truth, right? And honesty to assessments. Um, when we think about language, uh, when I worked in child welfare, like the most, I'm sure, well, maybe this is an overgeneralization, but if you searched all the child welfare documents, how many times would you find the word resistant, mm. right? We often labeled uh, families or parents that we were working with as resistant, but did we explain why they were resistant or what that looked like and why maybe that made sense? So going back to what Evelyn said about the use of silence. When people have no power in the situation, you use what you have um, to have some power in your life. And that's, you know, we would all um, respond in those ways to some extent. So really being able to, again, be truthful in the language that we're using and providing the right kind of context, um, I think, is a way that we can act in allyship. Um, and um, uh, one of the questions, uh, when we did this presentation, uh, some of it, um, an elder talked about um, just reminding about ceremony um, and and spirit. Um, and we find a lot with trauma, um, working and encouraging people to connect with culture um, and, uh, and the use of ceremony. Um, I want to, um, Benedict, uh, the final comment in the chapter that we wrote was, um, this is hard work, but we do it for the families. I'm aware we've got two minutes left, but um, is that everybody acknowledges that the work is difficult um, and that you are very brave souls to be doing this work. Um, and you're probably being really hard on yourself. Um, so hopefully you can take that open heartedness um, and um, appreciate yourself and maybe uh, take a look at what some other child welfare workers have said about um, their, their great commitment. You're all making a great commitment to families, um, to learning, unlearning, um, and that's one of the best gifts that you can bring to people. And I, I always like much. to, like, I have made so many mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I have stepped in it. And, you know, and, and, and in experiences where I had privilege, I could walk away from that and I would feel bad and I'd cry about it. But then my commitment to allyship is that I go back out and I apologize and I try and I say like, what can I do to, um, you know, to work through this and how can I do better? So we all make mistakes, but it's this, you know, staying committed, keep learning, keep trying and and we're all work supporting each other and healing together. Yeah, so that's actually the, the, the point. You when you realize the point at which you realize you made mistakes. But there are some situations where you have this privilege and you are using it. You don't even know because some of them are inherent in, in us. We just exhibit these privileges 
and and we are not mean that we are doing it to hurt other people. We think it's just a natural thing that is just playing out. But you have been able to understand that this is um this is wrong, and then you have that's where the treacherous identity comes in because you now turn around and they want to correct that situation and they, the other people who are who are the oppressors they look at you as being treacherous and then they, they they tag you as treacherous in your identity that's where that name treacherous identity came up from all right i think we got the high sign that we're done <laughs> thank you all very much thank you so much you. and we actually uh we just got an extremely uh, profound and beautiful question. Thank you, Diana, in the chat, which I'd love for everyone maybe just to take a look at. And it's something that we can um, have a discussion and a response to um, off of uh, at, at uh, tomorrow or at a different time, because I think it's a really important question you're asking there, Diana. So thank you. Um, so I, at this point, I would like to say thank you so much to Jen and Eveline. I think that um, we've, uh, you know, this was a great introduction to allyship, um, kind of across the board. And I would love to, you know, as we move forward, hear more about the work that uh, both of you are doing and have done um, from that that research and practice perspective, because I know that the work you do um, goes uh, ever so deep in this in this field. So I appreciate you both so much. And I just want to end on a comment that Vicky made because I think it um, um, encapsulates how I'm feeling as well. It says, "Thank you all very much. Excellent presentation. Keep up the amazing work. I have lots to share with our staff and the whiteboard on my office door is going to say, listen with an open <laughs> heart for a while. Be well, everyone. So thank you, Vicky, because those are better parting words than I, um, than I could think of. Uh, so with that note, uh, we'll sign off and I and wish you all please, safe contact, travels. Contact information for us in the handout. So please reach out if we can uh, talk any further or provide any more resources. And thank Wonderful. you all very much for being here and uh, helping us explore this topic. Thank you. Beautiful. Thanks so much, folks. Take care. Bye.